0: halfway through the summer. It's really hard to believe that uh, coming up on, on July, but uh, it's been good. So good to see you all this morning, and uh, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to to John 14. You're turning there. John 14. <coughs> So if you were Jesus and you knew that you were about to depart and leave your disciples um, behind, go to the cross in a matter of hours, what would you say to them? How would you prepare them for your departure? If you knew that, in a sense, the rest of salvation history and the success of the church and the spread of the gospel... Was dependent on your disciples getting it, what would you want to be sure to tell them? And that's actually what we get this morning in in our passage. Last week we were in verses 1 through 6 where Jesus is comforting his disciples. They are troubled by the fact that Jesus is departing from them, he's going away. They don't know why that's necessary. And Jesus wants to tell them that it's not only necessary, but it's good news for them that he goes away. He's not leaving them so that he would be gone from them forever, but he's going away so that he might be with them permanently in the Father's house. He's going to prepare a place for them through the cross. And it's good news that he's going away. And that brings us to our passage this morning, which is in verses 7-7. 14. And Jesus now continues to comfort his disciples in the face of his departure. He begins to prepare them now for this time in between his departure and then them being with him, whether through death or through his his return, this time while they are on earth. And so it's very applicable to us because that's the time in which we live, isn't it? Between these, these two comings of Christ. While he's departed and while we are with with him. So in verses 7 to 14 of this chapter, Jesus is going to give us two identities which disciples must remember upon the departure of Jesus. Two identities. And the first identity is the identity of Jesus as the ultimate revealer. Of the Father, this is what they—he wants them to get. He wants to make sure that they get. Jesus is not only the access to the Father's presence, as in verse six, He's the way to the Father. He's also the display of the Father's person. He's not only the way to the Father's house; He is the very radiance of the glory of God. Jesus not only brings people to the Father in heaven, but knowing Jesus leads to a personal knowledge and a sight of the Father now in this life for you and for me. That's what he wants to make sure his disciples get first. So let's look at this a little bit more closely. He first gives them the nature of this identity. He is the perfect image of of the Father. Look at verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me Has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So in verse 7, Jesus says, if you have known me, I think the implication is, and you do, then you will know my Father. This word know, we've seen it many times already in the Gospel of John. It's a key word. It means much more than just mental knowledge, information, it has to do with relational knowledge intimate knowledge. Personal knowledge. It's the essence of eternal life, right? John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they might, what? Know you, the eternal God, and Jesus Christ whom whom you sent. Jesus is saying that knowing him, knowing Jesus personally, relationally, savingly, will lead to an intimate knowledge of the Father. But why? Look at the rest of verse 7. He says, From now on you do know him and have seen him. He wants to clarify that he's not merely the way and the link to the Father. Knowing him is not only the necessary prerequisite to knowing the Father. Jesus says that knowing Christ is synonymous with knowing the Father. And this is what all disciples must know and believe about Christ, if they're to get him rightly, if they're to know him rightly. He says, from now on, that is, from this point in salvation history onward, with the incarnation and especially the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, from this point onward, disciples presently know and have seen the Father. How? How? How does that work? Well, Philip thinks that he knows. Look at verse 8. He says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. He hears Jesus say that from now on they will have seen the Father, and he says, Okay, so so, so give it to us. Show us the Father. Give us a visible manifestation of the Father. Mm-hmm. He's still thinking of Jesus merely as a stepping stone to the Father. But there's a problem with his request. Philip wasn't wrong for wanting to see the Father. He wasn't wrong for thinking that Jesus really meant he was going to visibly show the Father. But he was wrong because Jesus had already given a visible display of the Father. Philip has been with Jesus since the very beginning. Look at verse 9. Jesus said, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? He's been with Jesus from chapter one of this gospel, the very beginning of his ministry. And yet, even after such a long time, Philip and the rest of the eleven still do not know Jesus as they ought. And so long as they continue to ask Jesus to reveal the Father, give some visible manifestation of, of the Father, so long have they failed to recognize Jesus as they ought. Jesus Is the visible display of the Father. There's nothing remaining to be known about the Father which cannot be known through Christ. That's an astonishing claim. It's a claim to deity. Nobody can say that unless they were divine. Jesus could only say such a thing if he were fully God. And if one fails to recognize Christ as this, then one has failed to know Christ rightly. He wants to make, his, make sure his disciples get this right. Now, point of clarification, he is not saying that he is indistinguishable from the Father, as though he's just the Father in a different form. Right? That would be the heresy known as modalism. He's not saying that. We've seen Jesus relate to the Father all through this gospel, Right. Okay. He obeys the Father. He prays to the Father. They're clearly distinct persons, if you will. So he's not saying, I'm the Father in simply another form. Jesus is not the Father. But he's saying that the very character and person of God has been so perfectly revealed in him that there's nothing left that's needed in order to receive the truest and fullest manifestation of God that has ever been experienced. And this has always been the great hope and expectation of God's people. To look upon God. To see God. To gaze upon the glory of God. It's the greatest gift. It is the greatest experience of joy and satisfaction imaginable. And we see this hope and longing all through the Old Testament. You you might be, familiar with Moses' words. Remember what he said in Exodus 33? Lord, show me your your glory. There's a sense, though, in which the total unveiled being of God cannot be seen by man. Owing, number one, to man's sinfulness, and then, not just our sinfulness, but also our creatureliness, the total unveiled being of God and all of his glory and all of his eminence and, eminence and greatness cannot be looked upon by man. You know what he said to Moses after he gives him the display on Mount Sinai? God said to him, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And in this sense, no one has ever seen God. No one. I'll give you a few verses. John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. 1 Timothy 6.16. Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God is, is what theologians call invisible. He can't be seen. The totality of his glory and being cannot be seen by, by man. And yet the Bible does speak of people seeing God, right? Can you think of some instances of people seeing God? So you think of Israel in the wilderness? They saw the pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud. Abraham saw the the angel of the Lord. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up on a throne. So there are instances where people see God. But in all of these instances, God simply revealed himself in some created form, some visible form or appearance of his person, but never the unveiled totality of his being. Moses caught a glimpse of God, but it was only his his backside. Exodus 33 The Lord said, Behold, there's a place where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by I will put you in the cleft of the rock I'll cover you with my hand until I pass by, then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but you shall not see my face God in his fullness cannot be seen and looked upon by man but while no one has ever seen God, there is one who has seen God in all of his fullness and glory. You know who it is? It is. It is the Son. So keep all of that in the background. Now listen to these verses. John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, but the only God, it's the Son, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. In John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The idea He was toward God. Mm-hmm. He was eye to eye with God. He saw God. John 6.46, Not that anyone has seen the Father. No one has seen the Father except Him who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus and Jesus alone... Seen the Father. It's another claim to deity. Only God can make such a claim. And not only has he seen the Father, but he's the eternal Son of the Father. And as that, he takes on flesh and was crucified in flesh in order that the being of God, in all of its fullness, might be displayed, be unveiled in flesh to where we can actually see it. And he comes, puts it on display in a way more clear and complete than it's ever been done. So again, verse 18, he has made him known. That word is where we get our word exegesis. He has exegeted the Father. He has explained him in all of his fullness in a way that's never been done before. And that is the goal of our salvation. That we would know personally, intimately, and behold the splendor and character of God. But how do we do that? We do it by beholding who? By beholding Jesus. And that's the expectation and the hope the redeemed have had from the beginning. That's why we were created, to see God. And it has already begun now. Look what he says. From now on, you have seen him. Oh, it will be culminated in the age to come, but it has begun now. You we say, well, Michael, I've never seen Jesus in the flesh. And there is a sense in which the disciples who saw Jesus in the flesh, being crucified in the flesh, saw him in a unique way, the glory of God in flesh. Um, and we haven't seen that, have we? I don't think anyone in here has seen Christ in the flesh. But how do we see him? If God's glory is made known in the flesh of Christ, we don't see that. How can this apply to us? And it applies to us because we see Christ now through the eyes of the disciples, through the eyewitness testimony. Right? John 20 31. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We see him through Scripture. That's what we're doing, studying the Gospel of John. That's what should be your aim as you do personal Bible study and devotions and family worship, seeing God through Jesus Christ. So that is the first nature, the the nature of the identity of Christ, the first point. What's the basis of the identity? He's the perfect image of the Father. Seeing Christ is synonymous with seeing the Father. He reveals the Father more clearly than at any time before, but but why? What qualifies Jesus to make such statements? Well, we get the answer next in verse 10 through 11. He says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The basis of his identity is his complete unity with the Father. He says twice, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now what does that mean? I don't think it means he's spatially in the Father, like somehow he is inside the Father and the Father is inside of him. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying, I am relationally in the Father. I'm relationally in him and he in me. We're going to see the same terminology come in chapter 15, where it talks about believers. You are in Christ and he is in you. It's talking about a relational unity. But here, Jesus is speaking of his relationship with the Father. And it implies a complete unity, a unity of purpose and desire and character. And he's going to flesh this out in the the following verses. So let's take a look. When he says, I am in the Father, he means that he exists in a relationship of complete dependence and complete devotion to the Father. And this can be seen in his words. Look at verse 10. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. I do not speak them from myself. And we've seen this all through the Gospel of John. Jesus didn't come with his own message. He didn't come on his own authority for his own glory. He came in dependence on the Father. The Father gave him every word to speak, and he spoke it all. That's what he means. He's in the Father. He's dependent on the Father, the Father's plan and purposes, speaking only the words the Father gave to him. Then... That's what it means that he's in the Father. What does it mean that the Father is in him? I think what he means there, the Father is in me, is that the Father is carrying out his purposes and plan through Christ. So look at the rest of verse 10. I do not speak on my own authority. I am in the Father. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. So I think that's explaining what it means that the Father is in him. (coughs) The Father is in the Son in the sense that He's standing behind the ministry of Christ. He's purposing it, planning it, ordaining it, and directing Christ in all of His his works. That's what it means. They're, They're one. They're in harmony. He's in complete submission and dependence on His Father, and the Father is in complete support of Christ. And in that way, He's able to perfectly reflect the Father's image. Go back with me to chapter 5, if you will. We saw the same thing back there. One of the most Trinitarian passages in the Gospel of John. John 5, verse 19. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. In other words, Jesus does and only does what God the Father is doing. He's always responding to the Father. He's never, there's never a maverick moment with the Son. He's always responding to the Father. That's not all. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So not only does the Son only do what the Father is doing, but everything that the Father does, Christ does. He does all that the Father does. In other words, the Father never does anything that he does not do through his Son. There's complete unity in the Trinity between the Father and the Son. And because of that oneness, Jesus images the very character and purpose of the person of God. Again, another indication of his deity. So go back to chapter 14. Look at verse 11. Jesus now calls his disciples to believe this about himself. He says, believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Believe my total unity with the Father, or else believe on account of the works themselves. He says, believe me, and if you don't believe me, at least look at the signs, my works, my signs which I've done through all my ministry are evidences testifying to my unity with the Father. But how did they do that? What were his signs? Remember, they were not simply miraculous displays of power. What were they? They were symbolic, right? They were symbolic manifestations, not only that he is God and powerful, but something about his mission. They were all pointing to the fact that he's come to accomplish all of the Father's promises in the Old Testament. The kingdom promises, the new covenant promises, the new creation promises. In other words, his works were not just saying, hey, look how powerful I am, but I've come to fulfill the purposes of the Father. That's how his works testify to his identity and his unity with the Father. And that's what Jesus tells his disciples to believe. And when one believes this about Jesus, that he is in the Father and the Father is in him, then not only do you get his identity right, but in a sense you see God. Jesus has not just come to forgive our sin. He's done that. But he's come, first and foremost, to reveal God. God is the gift of the gospel. And not only to reveal God to us, but to bring us to an intimate relationship and knowledge and sight of God the Father. We're going to experience that in the age to come, but you experience it now, right? From now on, you have seen him. And you know him. So before we move on to the to the next point, let me just ask you, so what? Okay? It's a lot of theology. <clears throat> Sounds very important. How does that matter? How's that going to affect you tomorrow morning when you get up? What do you think? <clears throat> Apparently it's pretty important, right? This is the one of the last things he tells his disciples before he goes because if they get this wrong there goes the salvation history and the whole hope of the church and the success of the gospel what do you think? how should this practically influence you? Uh, Laura and I were just talking about a quote from Alistair this morning about understanding why theology matters on the way of church or something she was listening to and it was discussing knowing that there is one God who has made all things, including us. And so we want to be able to take our theology, and not just make it academic, but understand that We need to. Un- he was. His point was we need to understand that this is the one who made us, and that he has made us for a relationship with him. And so our theology drives the fact that we've been made for him. And it was just a very succinct way of understanding this this, this amazing relationship that we have with the Father. And our theology really drives us so it's not a practical head knowledge if you will but it is everything that we are to do in a relationship to the one who made us and so not only understanding God then it makes us understand who we even are as his creatures. Oh was a really really good quote it is so something I think bends in right there for that question that's good that's good hmm. so if we only think theology is useful these doctrines are useful because I can have some Need little practical things to do, right? Um, which there's many practical things to do rather than the main thing, which is to know him, right? To relate to him, which that influences all of our doing, right? If you get that wrong, it's going to change everything, right? That's the main thing. So that's yeah. good. Yeah, like uh, I thinking of the Apostle Paul, when he said in the relational side of things in his interpretation is in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the idea of, you know, you're talking about Jesus with the Father, and then now Jesus in us, and uh, revealing that. So, so the Apostle Paul gives us some good insight yep. for, for us. Praying. Amen. Amen. And Jesus will... Pack some of that John fifteen, as you know, the abide in me passage. It's beautiful. Anything else? Any thoughts? Yeah, Uh, I just always think about uh, like Second Corinthians three when he talks about beholding the glory of God, Mm -hmm. uh, and so it says, uh, "Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom." And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we're beholding the glory of God and then trying to be transformed into that same image. Amen. That's good. And it's as we behold His glory that the transformation happens. Yeah. So you want to have change in your life? See God. See His glory. That's what 1 John tells us, right? When we see Him, what's going to happen? We're going to be made like Him. That happens in this life as we progressively do see him. I jotted down three things really quickly. Um, These truths reorient us to the goal of salvation. It's not just the forgiveness of sins. As great as that is, it is to bring you to God. It is that you might know him and see him and find your life and satisfaction in him. Number two, it clarifies our gospel message. Jesus came mainly for this. And all the other gifts of salvation are to the sins. Number three, it directs our eyes to Christ as the embodiment of the Father's glory. It drives us to get to know Christ better. This is, again, what we are doing in the Gospel of John. So that's the first identity his disciples need to get. Who is Jesus? He's not just the way to the Father, a stepping stone. He is the very visible appearance of the Father. But number two... He tells us the identity of disciples as Jesus' dependent representatives in verses 12 to 14. And as Jesus departs, his disciples must know their identity as those who will continue to carry out Jesus' works while he is away. And they too must do so with the same kind of unity with Christ that Christ had with the Father. So let's look at these. Verse 12 tells us that Christ's disciples continue the work of Christ while he is in heaven. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Notice a couple things. Notice how this verse connects back to verse 11. In verse 11, disciples are to believe in his identity, which is evidenced by his works. And now in verse 12, those who have believed in him as this will do the same works Jesus did. So he's shifting from describing those who believe rightly in him to now describing what these who believe in him will do. And they'll do the same works that he does. Notice also that he's not just speaking about the 11 here. What does he say? He says, the one who believes in me. That's extremely broad. That phrase is used over and over in the Gospel of John for true believers. The one who believes in me. And he says that true believers will do the same works Jesus himself did. And were that not enough, Jesus heightens it in the rest of the verse. He says, greater works will he do now what does that mean? How in the world do believers, you, believer in Jesus, do greater works, and the works are connected to his signs, than Jesus did? Well, I think there's a couple of clues that helps us to know what he means. The first is found back in chapter 5, so go back there. Chapter 5, verse 20. So we saw verse 19 a few minutes ago, and now look at verse 20. Verse 19 talked about his unity with the Father. Now verse 20 says, The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these. The exact same phrase, greater works than these. Well, what is the than these? The than these is pointing back to the sign that he just did. He healed this man who had been lame for 38 years. And Jesus is saying, that's not it. The Father's going to show me greater things than these signs. And I'm going to do it. Well, what are those greater things? Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever He will. What are the greater things? It is the resurrection from the dead. It is the final judgment. That's what the Son has come to accomplish. The healing of the man, in other words was just a foretaste to what Christ had come to do. It was a pointer. The sign was a pointer to the ultimate fulfillment of the greater things he was going to do, which was the resurrection and the restoration of of all things. So when Jesus says the Father will show him greater things, I think he means it in a sense of fulfillment. They're greater in the sense of fulfillment. His signs were just foretastes, pointers to the greater thing and I think that's the idea of our passage so go back to chapter 14 now here the contrast is not between signs done by Jesus and greater things Jesus will do as in chapter 5 but the signs done by Jesus and the greater things his disciples will do but what do these greater things mean greater things you will do Well, it certainly doesn't mean that they're going to do more spectacular or miraculous works than Jesus did. It's hard to imagine anything more spectacular than changing water into wine or feeding 5,000 or raising Lazarus from the dead. So I don't think he's talking about spectacular or um, more supernatural. What does he mean? I think they're greater in another sense. They're greater in the sense of fulfillment the reality to which all of Christ's signs were pointing. That's how they're greater. But I think there's another clue. Look at the rest of verse 12. It says, You'll do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. That's why. It's because he goes to the Father. Because he departs to the Father, believers will do greater works. It's another reason why it's good news that he goes away. What's so significant about his return to the Father? Because as Jesus returns to the Father, he goes as the victorious Messiah. As he returns to heaven, he will inaugurate a new age. The new covenant will have begun. The Spirit will have been provided. Redemption will have been accomplished. And all the works that disciples do now are done in this age in which Christ is now in heaven. And redemption has been accomplished. This new era, if you will. So then how are our believers' works greater than Christ? They're greater in the sense of fulfillment. They're the very thing that the signs were pointing to. And they're greater because they're done now with Christ already in heaven. Satan already cast out. Redemption complete. The new covenant already begun. You say, okay, I think I see that, but just what are these works? What do they look like? If they're not miraculous works, but fulfillment of what Jesus' works pointed to... And they're done with Jesus already in heaven and redemption accomplished. But what do they look like? I think the answer is that they include all the activities of the church the ministry of believers, which are based upon Christ's completed work. They're not miraculous signs. The signs pointed to something greater. They are, in a sense, the thing to which the signs pointed. Lives changed by the new birth. Lives transformed by the Holy Spirit as we are ministering to one another and speaking the gospel and spreading it around the world. All these things are the same works that Jesus did in the sense that they're the continuation of his work, but they're greater because a massive shift has taken place. Jesus is in heaven, the Spirit is provided, and all of those glimpses of the signs. And now being fulfilled in your work in gospel ministry. And that's how we must view our lives and our calling. We're called to carry out the works of Christ on earth with Him now reigning in, in heaven. This passage is meant to call us to the greatness of what it means to be a disciple now in this life. So, believer, know yourself as living at this amazing point in history. Know the great power which is at work in you. Know the significance of all of your gospel labor. It is a fulfillment, in a sense, of everything that Christ had come to accomplish. And it's greater than anything that he did on earth. That's not all. We've not been merely left here as Christ's representatives to carry out his work, but Christ continues to do his work through his dependents, Disciples, Look at verse 13. He says, Whatever you ask me in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. These verses now direct the eyes of the disciples back to Christ. Yes, they're to continue his work while he is away, but this verse clarifies that the contrast is not so much between Jesus worked when he was on earth and now disciples work, but rather... Jesus did his works on earth, and now he's doing his works from heaven through his disciples. These are still the works of, of Christ, ultimately. And these verses need to be read in the context of what came before. This is not um, a verse that you can use for anything that you want. It's talking about as disciples are in the ministry, are they as they are carrying out the works of Christ, doing these greater works. What are they to do? They are to have the same kind of dependence on Christ that he had On his Father. See that? Disciples are to ask Jesus to do things in his name. It's interesting, normally prayer is directed to who? It's directed to the Father. But here it's directed to to Jesus, specifically. So I think you can pray directly to Jesus. And it's looking to him for the assistance one needs as one carries out his work in earth. What does it mean to ask him in his name? I think it simply means we are his representatives. Jesus said he had come in the name of the Father, and disciples are now in his name. We ask him as we are representing him on earth to now assist us as we carry out this mission, looking to him for the assistance we, we need. Why? Look at verse 13. That the Father may be glorified through the Son. Again, the same goal. Father's Christ pursues the Father's glory not only in His earthly ministry but now through the ministry of disciples on on the earth. And because of that, Christ will hear verse 14. He says it again, If you ask me anything in my name. That's an open-end promise to you as you're engaged in the works that Christ has left you here to do. Sharing the gospel. Discipling one another. Counseling one another. Leading your families. You have access to Christ. And he has promised to answer. To assist you. To carry out his works in and through your life. As you engage in that. So let me give you a couple implications for you. In closing. As we think about prayer and dependence on on Christ. Number one. We will not pray as we ought until we see our primary business for which we've been left here are these works is to represent Jesus, is to carry out what He had come to fulfill and accomplish: the new birth, through the proclamation of the gospel, through the Holy Spirit, lives transformed, the spread of Christ and the Father's glory through the world. Put it this way, there's a shaping influence that comes on our prayers when we are engaged in the kind of life that we've been left here to live. You might know John Piper's illustration of prayer. It's not an intercom to call up another pillow. It's a walkie-talkie to call in reinforcements, right? It's meant for a wartime mentality. But when we cease to live a wartime mentality, knowing what we've been left here for, and malfunctions. We use this walkie-talkie as an intercom to call in all these things for which we've not been left here. We have no promise for. We need to know what we're about, get busy, and then our prayers will be shaped. We'll be dependent on Christ. have a kind of urgency that we need Him at work, and I feel that every week when I come here to teach. Um, I am a frail, weak vessel. I feel all I have is loaves and fishes every time I come. If it is up to me, nothing would be accomplished. I'm desperate for Christ to do his work through his word, through me, some way in your lives. That's how all of us are. As we speak the word and share it, we're dependent on Christ. Number two, we must never forget that we are just his representatives. Just as Christ came to perfectly represent the Father to accomplish his works by depending on him so we are to live we're to accomplish his works by depending on on him I just started a a book by Francis Schaeffer called True Spirituality it's excellent and uh, one quote that's just stuck with me since he said we've not been left here to build God's kingdom for him because often when we do that we end up building our own kingdom I've done it by my strength. I'm doing it for God. And it's not God that gets the glory. And it's not his kingdom in the end that was built. But rather, our attitude is that God would build his kingdom. He's the one that's building it. He's the one that's doing it. But Lord, that you would do it through me in whatever way you wish. And that's the heart of true spirituality. I'm not after building God's kingdom for him. I'm after him building his kingdom through me, however he wishes. And I'm going to be faithful and depend on him. I'm a representative, that's it, of Christ. Number three, we come with confidence in, in his name. It's a promise to you. It's an encouragement to be engaged in this kind of work. It's why he's left you here. It's why he's bringing this to the disciples' attention. They don't need, don't, not only need to know his identity, they need to know their identity as those who will continue his mission and his work by his power through his spirit to this world. As he does, as they do, God will be glorified through Christ. Any questions or comments? Or further implications that you see? All righty. So let me pray, um, get some more breakfast. I encourage you to come back uh, Tuesday morning, men, at our house, do our book study. We're yeah, really looking forward to that in the Wednesday evening here at 6.30, uh, the room right next door. So, pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. In him we now have a present view of you that is greater than anything that's ever been seen before. Your steadfast love and faithfulness have been revealed through Christ more clearly than was revealed to Moses on the mountain as Christ was crucified, we see God clearly. Your heart, love and justice and faithfulness, Lord. Father, I ask that our pursuit of our life would be to know you, to love you, and then not only knowing you, but seeing that our life's mission now is to continue Christ's works, to share the gospel with others, to serve one another in the body that we would see lives changed and new births happen and people transformed for the glory of god and but oh father we are just clay pots frail weak vessels we need your assistance lord i ask that you would come with us and help us Lord, we love you, thank you, and it's for your glory we, we pray. Prepare our hearts now for the service to come. In Jesus' name. Amen.